Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to your favorite podcast run by St. Anthony of Padua, Beyond the Bulletin. I'm Mike Gomer-Gormley, and I'm joined, as always, by my handsome co-host, Steve Too Tall Lenahan. How you doing, Steven? Too tall. My mom said you could never be too tall. Well, your mom is wrong. You are wow. too tall. Wow. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you're listening, Catherine. Yeah, she probably is, actually, right? Yeah, maybe. Eh, My know. mom doesn't. My mom always told me I have a face for radio. I don't know what that means. Wow. Well, I don't know if she does listen. I mean, you know, she did have to listen to me growing up, so... Maybe she's had her fill. Yeah, yeah I, think I think she's so. good now, so, so she's probably enjoying herself. Yeah, so one of the things that we wanted to do, due to the moderate to extreme levels of emails we've received in the past uh, <laughs> seven days... Is we wanted to tackle some of your hardest hitting questions from our concerns, not even questions. I'm yeah, not going to say yeah, questions. Yeah, yeah, there was I don't no think there questions. Was a single question mark in there. Yeah, they were I didn't all see exclamation a question mark. points. <laughs> Mostly exclamation points and a lot of caps and bold letters. <laughs> yeah, and it is good to hear such wonderful feedback from uh, our parishioners, both on the episode where we had Houston just kind of share his experience of being. Uh, a minority of minorities being a black Catholic who is seeking the priesthood. You know, for those of you who don't know, Houston was one of our in-residence seminarians for over for about a year. Yeah. And then uh, now he's going to be a deacon-to-be over at um, St. Faustina's. He's doing work. And so uh, all-around good guy, much beloved by the community. But we wanted him to come on and share some of his perspective, story, background, and views on all the current violence and shenanigans. One of the things that we have with our parishioners, with staff members, me especially, is we all think our clergy during homilies should talk about this or that, right? We all come at them and we're like, I think you need to talk about this, Father, whether it's the Trinity, the real presence, uh, how to pray, Marian devotions, apologetics, or hot-button social issues like uh, you know, the riots going on, the death of George Floyd, the uh, immigration, children in cages from... Uh, a year or two ago, all of these controversial issues, there are times when we're like, when are our pre I demand our priests or I demand our deacons to speak about X, Y, or Z. And they get that from so many different ways. So just, just today, I got an email from a guy on the left who's demanding that we talk about this stuff, while I got uh, a bunch of other emails from people who, I don't, I don't know, I think they would characterize themselves as on the right, saying that we talk too much about the exact issue. Yeah. And so one of the things that we want to do is clarify, Stephen, why did we have Houston on our episode last week? And, and what are your initial thoughts coming out of this? Well, and I, th I thought we stressed this pretty hard, you know, when we announced it, that we were going to do it, was the point was to listen. Yeah. Uh, because you and I, uh, we, can, we can talk all day. Uh, My opinions have opinions. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but uh, but it wasn't. It's not about that right now. Yeah. I, I, I really think it's about stopping and listening to the other. That is... The idea of the story of uh, Emmaus, right? Christ walks on the road, and he doesn't even reveal himself until he gets much further down the road with the uh, with the disciples, and then he reveals himself after he's yeah. listened to them, because that is that is discipleship, um, and that is uh, you know evangelization is walking with someone and listening to them, and so the the whole point. Uh, was really just to listen to Houston and give him an opportunity to share. Uh, he's a familiar face to a lot of us, someone that we adore. And then also to give not just the perspective of a young uh, you know, African-American man uh, growing up, but also the Catholic perspective. Um, and, and who better to do that than someone that's seeking the priesthood? And so that was kind of the, and, and, the Yeah, point. and let me hit like what our point wasn't. Right. So oftentimes when you talk about controversial issues, Matt Fratt always says this, when you talk about controversial things or with a controversial guest or an audience that might perceive a guest to be controversial, you always want to say what you don't believe. 
just because we had Houston on the show and talking about what we talked about, does and even though he brought up Black Lives Matter and his view of Black Lives Matter had nothing to do with the organization, because it's an organization, not just a movement. It's an organization um, that has views and they publish things that are that are irreconcilable with the Catholic Church. Like um, the, I, I don't even think he did. Did he? Did he, he just brought up the idea of for him the idea was Black oh, right. Lives Matter too. Yeah. So one of the things that happens is a lot of uh, people in our audience, and and I'm not I'm not saying this to be mean, but got triggered by certain things that were mentioned. Tr- triggered would be the perfect word. And I say triggered because yeah. you hear the thing and you jump to a different conclusion. Right. One of the things that we're trying to do, or what we weren't trying to do with this, is ratify every single thing that has happened from George Floyd's death onward right and so many people jumped in with i got emails that were like uh criticism of black fatherlessness i got emails about um white white privilege and its ability to dismiss a black man's story i got parishioners walking up being like it's about time houston uh, put our parishioners in our place and i got emails from people like why didn't you put houston and not not in its place because that would be like uh but why didn't you uh shove the facts or say the facts to Houston about the actual, like, the death rates, the lethality of black men at the hands of police. We got a lot of comments from both of these because the point of the show was to let Houston explain his experiences. But when certain phrases or words like systemic racism, just because someone might say a culture of a particular group, say a police force that does a lot of gang patrolling, might have a negative or cynical view towards blacks that might result in a harsher treatment. Like, anyone could say that. If you're cynical, like, when I wrote an open letter to corrections officers, and I said, like, we, we who do ministry to, poli- uh, to the prisoners, we see you, we know you're hurting, we know you're suffering. I don't know if you know this, but uh, corrections officers have the highest divorce and suicide rate. Oh, yeah, that's, that's got to be job, one of the most stressful jobs. Yeah, because depressing they, jobs. they are here to protect the very people that they are looking at to kill them. Right. right, so they have to watch their back while watching the guy who might kill him next week. They have to watch his back this week, and it's a very stressful situation that you become cynical. And one of the people interviewed in this piece that I read, um, written in a Catholic publication, said, "You can't just go home and turn that cynicism off. So you bring that cynicism, cynicism to your wife. You bring that cynicism to your kids. You always are suspicious. Right, and part of that is part of the job. And mm-hmm. I, I tell people, my my buddy became a Secret Service agent." He did the boot camp. He did the training. And he came to me and he said, you know, you're a moral, you study moral theology. Is it immoral that when I walk into a room, I size up every man, I map out the exits, and I prepare, like, if someone goes crazy, if I have to kill them or, or contain them, I, like, I run through that scenario automatically Yeah, you hear, you hear that a lot from veterans, too. Like, my brother yeah. used to say he would go to a restaurant after he got back from fighting in Iraq. He would go... And he always had to sit in a place where he could always see multiple exits. And I've heard that from a, a number yeah, of people. Yeah, and I worked with a, a Vietnam vet who said in, in the uh, for, 41 years while well, he struggled alone with PTSD, he put his back to every room he was in because he's always scanning for the next killer. Right. Right, and he needed to be able to make sure they wouldn't come from behind him. Now, I say this because when we talk about systemic racism, people think that immediately means, and this is judging from the volume of emails that you so and, delightfully sent us. And the content. And the content. That people think that systemic racism means we believe that every white person or every white police officer 
is a racist. And that's not what we were trying to get across. What we were not trying to all. get across is what I would – so, the you know, we use the word systemic, and maybe we should have been a little bit more nuanced with that. But, again, that wasn't the point of the show. The idea is structures of sin oh, reinforce sin. Hold yeah. on. Can I yeah. stop you there, though? Because I, I, I want to – the fact that that word triggers people so much because yeah. of what it's become in a political sense between, you know, CNN and Fox News and all this is ridiculous. Like – I'll be honest with you, and, and I'm going to go off for a second. This, the past seven days and some of the responses and things that have been said from both sides yeah. have been one of the hardest things I've ever seen working in the church. Yeah. Like, hands down. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to use the word disappointed. I'm not going to use the word disgusted. I'm not going to use the word enraging. Uh, he did not I did just not use, use those words. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm not... But it, but it was hard. I mean, yeah. it, and we kind of expected this, right? We're, we're talking about a controversial topic. It's And it's a topic that is defined by extreme emotions. Yeah. Just look out in the city streets on yeah. both sides, blue and black, right? Like, it is defined by right. extreme emotions. But I think the thing is, I... But I you just, were super disheartened. I was this disheartened. Week. We both were. Yeah, we both I, were. I really was because I, I just, you know, I, I thought that... I don't know. I thought that as a as a parish, maybe we were a little further down the track than 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 we actually are. And um, in terms of not reacting so quickly, but yeah. taking a moment to see things through the Catholic lens and praying to the Holy Spirit for guidance instead of, you know, reacting based off of whatever your you know news choice uh, or yeah. or political preferences are. And that was the part that was just kind of shocking to me. And I don't know why I shouldn't have been shocked because a parish is really just a reflection of the rest of society at the end of the day, right? People are people. Um, but it was. It, 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 was not, it was not easy uh, seeing the response that we got. And, and also for Father Tom, the responses that he got. You know, one of the things was his email that went out last week through Flocknote. Some uh, of the most ridiculous responses to that email. It was, it was painful. The first one that we saw... Like I wanted to punch a hole through my monitor, and you know, you react <laughs> when you're when you're a part of something. You you react. Oh, it is my baby, and this is how they're reacting. But that first response. So for those of you who don't know, uh, the the message that was crafted and sent out was the the tagline was or the subject the subject line was America's original sin. Yeah, which we knew that that was, and <laughs> Father Tom knew that that was going to get a probably some sort of a reaction it would certainly get people to to open the email which that's always the goal with emails just to get people to open it if you read the the message that was in yeah. the email it was very uh there's nothing in there i would say from a catholic perspective that, that is any, inflammatory politically sure yeah i mean anyone that's a catholic you know basic you know don't you don't have to be a theologian or anything could read that and be like yeah i can get behind that yeah but a lot of people got hung up on the subject line <laughs> america's original yeah. sin and yeah. that is fascinating because that was where people took it and they were like, so you're saying, you know, some of the things we heard were, so you're saying. Now, now we want to say a lot of people said this. So if you're listening yeah, and you're, you're the one of the people that said this, please know. You weren't the only one. You are not the only one. So we might not be talking about you. We might be talking about you. We're collectively talking about some of you. Yeah. <laughs> so, Here we go, identity politics. Yeah, so, <laughs> so here's the thing. So a, a few people reacted and said, oh, so does that mean 
that I need to uh, have another baptism. I thought we believed in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, you know, or I've never owned a slave. Like, how do I, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. And the point was not that. Yeah. Uh, the, the subject line, first of all, it was not created by anyone that works for St. Anthony's. It wasn't created by Father Tom. It wasn't created by yeah. anyone on staff. That has actually been a phrase that has been around and used by many authors, including many Christian authors throughout the years, to describe something that was always wrong from the beginning of our country's founding, just like original sin was wrong at the beginning of the founding of humanity. So it's this is the thing that drove me insane. Let me explain what an analogy is. An analogy (laughs) is a similarity in utter difference. And I say this because that's what my philosophy professor had to say. A similarity in utter difference. So what do we mean by that? Well, when you're talking about God, St. Thomas Aquinas says, we can't define God, we can't speak positively about God as if we can apprehend him with our terms. So we use negative terms. It's called negative theology. We use negative terms to describe God. How does God's relationship to time? He's infinite. That means no end. It's a negative term, right? He's omnipresent. There's no ending to his presence, right? So we use what's called negative theology. But when you talk about that, um, so people said, oh, so what we say about God, none of it is true. So you have these weird extremes. Either what we say, when we say God is just, that's the same thing as saying Stephen is just, or in this case, unjust. Um, (laughs) When we say that, those terms are equivocal. They have an equal meaning. And then there's, I always flip these two, equivocal and univocal. So they mean the opposite. So one means A equals B. The other one is A can never equal B. So saying God is just and saying Stephen is just, they can never be reconciled. Thomas Aquinas, the bedrock foundation of all of his metaphysics, and since we've jettisoned metaphysics, it's probably why politics is horrible, is he said, no, we speak with analogy. Analogy is here's a similarity in utter difference. There's a greater difference. So when we say something like God is just or God loves, there's a similarity. I can understand what God is love means because I love. But God's love is infinite. It is selfless. It is perfect. I can't really understand that. So God's love is an utterly different thing, but there is a similarity that allows me to build a bridge. Right. In fact, this, uh, we call it the analogia entis, the analogy of being, is the bedrock foundation that separates Roman Catholics from Protestantism, which was really hit home by uh, a guy named um, Karl Barth. I'm not going to go through that, but what I want to hit up is an analogy of America's original sin. It is only meant to be this. What's the similarity? At its beginning, there was a fall. Now, I believe, and I'm sure Stephen can agree, that America is the greatest and freest country on the face of the earth. Sure. You come to our country, and you're not defined by any preconceived aristocratic notions. Favorite holiday, July 4th, right here. (laughs) Yeah, and it's coming soon. It's coming soon. And you are free. Everyone, the immigrants from all over the world, and there are very specific reasons that a couple Harvard sociologists that I love say this, but they say, and Dr. Hahn has drawn on his book, First Comes Love, uh, they say, like, when I was in, a, in my home country, I had to be what my father wanted me to be, what my family expected me to be. When I came to America, I could be anything. And that's part of our individualism, which is good and bad. But it's also part of our freedom and the country enshrined in this freedom. And it was Alexander Hamilton who basically said, I'm paraphrasing, a country that says in the Declaration of Independence all men are created equal and that holds that, that uh, black enslaved laborers 
are three-fifths of a person, it's irreconcilable. So he's talking about the three-fifths compromise. He, Look yes. it up if you're not familiar. Yeah, and the three-fifths compromise is the reference of America's original sin. It's not that, I mean, it also is a reference to the fact that when Christopher Columbus landed on shore, he took Native Americans back as slaves. Uh, we forced uh, India, the, the Spanish government forced Indian uh, and Mexicans into slave colonies, essentially slave colonies. And then you have, like, you have this whole, I, we weren't even referencing that. We were referencing the fact that this is a, a set thing that's been a part of the national dialogue. When America began, in her constitution, the very way representatives are delegated for every state. Because remember, you got the Senate, which is, you know, you got two per state. Super state yeah. And then you have the representatives, which is based on population. The southern state said, well, the northerners have more free people than us. But we would lose all of our power, and it'd be lopsided. So they said, well, this is what we'll do. We'll do the three-fifths compromise. Every black slave is allowed to be counted as three-fifths of a person. So we won't make them be a whole person and thus subject to freedom, but we will count them for the sake of white power. And by, by white power, we mean only landed men were free men, right? And Essentially. Yeah, so that's the idea of you know, America's original sin, where that subject line came from. And I did respond. I did not respond. It does to not mean you need to get baptized in order to be <laughs> right, a, no. a non-racist. That's right. One one baptism for the forgiveness of all sins as Catholics. Yeah. But I did give the analogy. I did not respond to every parishioner just because I couldn't and the time frame yeah. and, and I needed to pray through a lot of it. There was one parishioner that I did respond to in this uh, on this exact topic. And I responded to this individual because I've known them for a long time yeah. and have a, a great ability to have these kind of difficult conversations. And so I emailed them back and I said, imagine trying to teach salvation history, uh, you know, in, let's say in one of our Bible study classes, TGA or something like that. Yeah. Imagine trying to teach salvation history, but never acknowledging original sin. Yeah. Like that's impossible. That, that's the whole, the whole point. It's the main part of what salvation history about was undoing yeah. what happened at the beginning. And the so great that's the story of redemption. Right. And yeah. so that's where that analogy of America's original sin uh, comes from. It also uh, is referenced, um, as I was reminded by lowly coordinator Brian Jones, uh, Ooh, he, <laughs> he reminded me that it's also referenced by uh, the great French thinker of the. Uh, yeah, Alexis de Tocqueville. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville of the 19th century. Um, who loved America, who loved the American experiment, talked about it, write, wrote about it. His book, Democracy in America, is the bedrock foundation of true, and this is where, this is where I, I, true conservatism in America. Right, and he even acknowledges the issue uh, and re refers to it as America's original sin, right? Yeah, and he was talking about that. He was writing his book. So what he did was he was like, why does the French, why can't we maintain a democratic society? We have our revolutions. America had its one revolution, but we keep killing each other over and over again here in France. How are the Americans doing it? So in the 1800s, he comes over and he goes up and down America. He looks at rural life, um, municipal life, all of these things. And he looks at New England and the South and he studies our systems and the ways, the cultural ways we've adopted. And a lot of it is because we are inheritors of an English system. Common law, self-rule, self-governance governance is huge in America. And we were a country. Now, for people who like to use the phrase uh, uh, America as the exceptional uh, nation, right? We're an exceptional nation. That idea comes from a, uh, comes to us because we were the first nation of European descent that did not have landed aristocracy as a part of its self-understanding. 
we had mercantilism or commercial rights right. as a part of our self-understanding. So capitalism took root and flourished here in ways that even though all the words are French, entrepreneur, right, laissez-faire, bon, 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 right, all this stuff in France. Wow. You're welcome, America. <laughs> <laughs> if we have any you can tell French I was a hardcore listeners. libertarian where I walked through all this, like, history of, of capitalism. But it didn't take root in the way, and France always tends towards socialistic tendencies. Right. And it always tends towards nationalism. Why is it in the United States that stuff didn't happen? And one of the things that he said is, you know, when you look at aristocracy, it's like everyone from the poorest peasant to the mighty king is all linked together in these chains. And it's just one chain that goes from the poorest to the greatest. And he said everyone knew where they were in the, in the line, in the chain, in the lowest parts, in the highest parts. And he didn't really move up the chain, right? That's what marriage was for, to kind of go up the chain a little. Everyone knew where they were, but there was no real movement. And he said, in America, because we never had this aristocracy, we, we don't have feudalism, we don't have this chain. Everyone, it's like you took the chain and you didn't just drop it on the ground so everyone's equal, you de-linked the chains. Right. And so he said, the problem with that and the problem with like the tendencies of this goodness within America and the individualism of America is now each link can define itself, but also it's not defined by anything else. And so the tendency can be, we, the tendencies that we see in 20th century Europe, 19th century Europe, is we turn towards radical individualism, where I define the universe, and you got Roe v. Wade versus, um, or uh, you got the Supreme Planned Parenthood versus Casey, where the, the outcome of the Supreme Court said every individual gets to define the meaning of the universe for themselves. Bishop Barron always brings that up in the context of pro-life work. That's radical individualism. I get to find what life is. And then you get radical socialism. Right? I'm scared to be alone, so I throw myself into the group. In America, our radical socialism is expressed through identity politics. Yeah. And that's the danger. We are trying to walk through both of these with the Catholic response. I affirm the dignity of every human being at every stage of life, and I fight for its sacredness. Does that mean that America is inherently evil if there is an action of, of police brutality against a specific minority group. Now, here's... I'm talking way too long. That's okay. You're, you're, I was going to interrupt eventually, but you're going. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. The, the qualifiers I want to say is just because we're turning a light onto this within the parish doesn't mean we're saying that even George Floyd's death was because he was a white cop and George Floyd was a black man. Like, we, do we know that race was the cause? But what we do know about that incident, and I was listening to... Um, uh, a leader, a black conservative movement. He's part of this thing called Blexit, which is to get blacks out of the Democratic Party. I'm sure a lot of people are going to love that I just said that. They're going to be so ticked off. Send your emails to S. Lenahan. No, at... <laughs> do not. I didn't say it. I'm not talking about that. But he was uh, he was a police officer for years. And one of the things he says was, they said, what was your reaction as a, as a black man and as a police officer, former police officer, what was your opinion of watching that nine-minute video? He said, I didn't go to race because I don't know what happened. He said, but the fact that he knelt on that man's neck and you can hear him plead, he said, if I were a police officer and I might have had to kneel on his neck to subdue him, he's like, I'm not ruling that out. He said, you are trained to do that for like 30 seconds. Yeah, not And once they're minutes. subdued, and he said, if I ever had a, uh, he calls it, what is it, exuberant, exu uh, whatever. It's the, the high, the coming down the high from being on meth and drugs like that. It's like a sugar crash times a thousand. He said often they would go into respiratory issues, especially if they had respiratory issues, um, going into it. And he said, um, 
always, the, the first thing you do is you get off them and you turn them on their side. You're still in power. You're still in control. You still immobilize them, but you let them breathe. You call for help. And he said the fact that three other police officers, and we don't know why, that, that's what he said. We don't know why. They didn't move to do something for nine minutes. He said that is criminal. Yeah. That is criminal. Well, and, and, and that was kind of, uh, that was Houston's point last week. He said, you know, the point is not what he did or didn't do, his past crimes. That None of that really yeah. matters. The point is he was never given a fair trial in this particular instance because yeah. that guy snuffed out his life. So all that to be said, I, I want to talk about something else that I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about that I'm noticing, not just in our parish, but just as a, as a society right now, is that yeah. we have uh, some uh, generations that are, could not be further apart yeah. Uh, from each other you've got you've got baby boomers all the way down to to gen z and uh, i mean it's almost like they're speaking different languages and my concern that i'm seeing on both sides of this i now understand what generation x feels like as a millennial you're just caught in the middle yeah. uh no but my my concern with this is what i'm seeing is so much anger and yeah. hatred on both like generationally and and then the the left and the right and the whole thing. So, you know, I'm, I'm watching, you know, uh, younger people on Twitter just spout off and share things that are not true and not logical yeah. um, on one side of things. But then, I, but then I'm seeing these same emails, uh, you know, from baby boomers and stuff like that that are so filled with hate. And my, my concern and my challenge to those of us... Let's not say so filled with hate. Let's say extremely heated. <laughs> extremely heated. Because they wouldn't say, I'm, I, I hate anyone. They're sure, saying, like, sure. no, you're not saying the That's facts. right. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the other thing with email is that, like, 98% of emails are read through a negative lens when you open the email, <laughs> and most people know that. Especially you... <laughs> with one with the subject line, America's original Right, sin. yeah. So <laughs> Question mark? But, but my concern is that is, is, is twofold, yeah. and this was the point of last week, again, was the idea of listening. I don't see... Um, older generations listening to younger generations and the frustration and the concerns. You know, they're, the younger generations don't have, for the first time, a lot of hope that they're going to be able to improve their lives more than their parents did, right? The last generation that was able to do that was probably Generation X. You know, millennials and, and Generation Z, they don't see that hope. They don't see that they're going to be able to improve their life or live the American dream beyond the scope of what their parents did. And that's tough when you've got a generation of young people that don't see that. I've experienced that personally at different times in my life. Yeah. Um, you know, so a Generation X was called X, and it meant generation nothingness. Right. That the original term meant generation like nothing because they were actually the first generation that did worse than their parents. Healthcare-wise, like overall health, overall income, overall family, all that stuff. And and, and if yeah. you're and if you're sitting there saying, you know, and you're hearing this and you're thinking, well, I've got kids and my kids are doing just fine and they're successful and blah 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 blah. Well, good for you. That's but awesome. That's not. We want that. That's not the majority. Yeah. That's not the majority as a society, and that's why you see some of these things. So, there's kind of this idea of not not understanding and not listening. I feel like in the older generations, um, or empathy. Maybe it's a sense of empathy instead of listening and then in the younger generations it's not 
there's not a whole lot of logic. Uh, <laughs> What's I mean, the line from from Churchill? <laughs> if you're in your 20s and you're not a liberal, you have no heart. If you're in your 40s and you're not a conservative, you have no head. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, there's there's a lot of uh, there's 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 some truth in that. And and I and it's interesting. I think because uh, we're in our 30s. Well, just we, look at the baby. We're boomers caught in between. Right yeah, look now. at when baby boomers were in their 20s. Yeah, when baby boomers were in their 20s, you had the 60s and the 70s. Right. Right. And so this is a generational cyclical thing. This is why uh, you know, the, the Egyptian god Horus is the young god, but he's also the bringer of light. And his dad is dead in the underworld and he's sightless. That it's these myths of like the older generation that carries tradition and values. The very reason why I'm a conservative is I think there are some things from the past worth conserving. Right. And the progressives say, no, what was from the past and, and is not worth conserving, we have to progress to something else. And the problem, the problem is, like, every generation talks past each other because we all start from within the experiences of our own generation. So when exactly. a baby boomer says, I'm not racist, quit calling me racist, to them racism is a southern, poli a southern fire department turning on a hose on a four-year-old black girl who's trying to go to school right. and spraying them down the street. And they were like, I, I cried when I saw that on TV. And you're telling me? You're telling me I funded, you know, groups that well, fought against or, or like, that. you know, uh, a lot of baby boomers like to talk about how their parents fought in World War II. And my grandfather did, and so I my understand that. Yeah. But to Generation Z, that doesn't apply to them. Like, that's that's all history book. That doesn't mean uh, necessarily what it means to the older what generations like in terms every of that. Month? Because their, their yeah. experience of American wars at, at most is that their grandparents fought in Vietnam yeah. or the Gulf War or the Iraq War, which were extremely different, and, and the, uh, the purpose of them was extremely different, and even the military tactics of our country were different. Yeah, you know what's interesting? Uh, so I have a, a buddy of mine who served three tours in Afghanistan, and he's uh, a medal winner and all that stuff. He was an officer. He's decorated. He's amazing. Uh, he's uh, a, a very pro-life lawyer now, and he's, he's involved in all this stuff. And he said, uh, I said, well, how do you feel when people say thank you for your service? And he says, nothing makes me more disgusted. And I was like, whoa, I was just about to say it to you. And he said. Good thing you didn't. Yeah, I know. I said, why is that? Because, you know, in Atlanta, that's one of the major airports where U.S. troops ship out overseas. It's and also so, where they go, the Army, they fly the recruits into train at Fort Benning, fun fact. Yeah, and so they said there literally is an alarm in the atrium when the troops come marching through and everyone stands up and we applaud and we say thank you for your service. And I said, "What why do you against it?" He said, "The military that fought in World War II because of the draft and because of its size, it was 11 million people, 11 million men more or less marched to war. That it's 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 half the town left to go join." He said, Today we have a almost like a privatized military where sure I go fight the war for you. And this is why he hated it. Now, he said, he ended up clarifying and saying, no, 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 it was fine. Like, I'm happy for people to say that. It, it does show appreciation. But he said, it's almost like my experience is, thank you for going and doing that, and I've absolved myself of having to sacrifice because I pay you to go do it for me. And now that's Ooh, not, obviously wow. that's not a universal feeling, and yeah. that's not across the board. And in the end, he said, thank you for saying that anyway. Um, but that's one of these experiences where when you begin to look at the generational gap when viewing these things is I, and I'm sure Stephen is, we were brought up in a culture where 
talking about racism was openly encouraged and examining the history of racism oh my gosh, yeah. was openly encouraged. I mean, I went to public school. But here's the funny thing. I was in public school in Oklahoma. No one ever ever mentioned the Tulsa race massacre of the 1920s where Black Wall Street was utterly destroyed. Yeah. No one ever mentioned that. It wasn't put in the, the Oklahoma curriculum until 2020, until now. And so there's elements where it's and, and I, easier for us to talk about this stuff. Yeah, and it's easier. It was openly talked about at the earliest stages. I mean, I, the town yeah. that I lived in in Georgia is where the Trail of Tears started, and and where I grew up, Broken Arrow is where the Trail it's of where Tears it ended. ended. Yeah, it really was. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Aww. that's not a good Dang thing it. to be united on. But yeah, so I, yeah, I mean, racism is not something that is uncomfortable for us to talk about in that sense. I mean, it's yeah. uncomfortable for everyone to a degree because yeah. it's such a personal uh, topic and a, and a hard thing to face. Um, but you know, you also think about like, we were, we were formed by nine 11, but not in the same way that our parents saw. Right. Right. Uh, you know, I was in ninth grade when nine 11 happened and then my brother went off to Iraq and you know, Iraq was a difficult war and I mean, it kind of drug on and there's a lot of PTSD that we're now seeing in, in these young men that, yep. that went off. Uh, so, and, and not to say that other generations haven't seen that. I just think that the, the framework is different for each generation and each generation needs to work on yeah. some things in this, this and I, context. And I a think, more. yeah, and I think also the shift for a lot of us is, I mean, there are huge economic issues going on between black and white communities, right? And all these cities where there's huge racial uprest are also cities that have been controlled almost exclusively by liberal Democrat mayors, governors, heads of police, and the situation hasn't gotten better. And then you have someone like Trump who openly baits people on Twitter and all this stuff. Yeah. But one of the things that I found that was so shocking was he said, uh, in one of his State of the Union addresses, he said, um, black unemployment is at historic all-time lows. Now, people can argue the stats, but the C-SPAN panned the camera over to the National Black Caucus, and not a single one of them applauded. And when I saw that, one of the I, I thought of one of two things. It, one was, man, they really hate Trump. But two was, even the good, the good things. It becomes almost impossible for us to acknowledge because the politics of things yeah. have gotten so bad, and it creeps into us. But I think that one of the reasons why um, Stephen also is bringing up, I like referring to you in the third person while gesturing to you. Hello. No, the bringing up the <laughs> generational divide is you could almost draw a line right down the middle of Gen Xers and baby boomers, uh, people from those generations. I don't want to just, but they're the ones sending us the angry emails. And the people who are younger are sending us the thank you for having that conversation email. And it's like, what is the difference? Like, what what is causing the difference? And I think it, for a lot of us, I want to speak very, like, part of the problem is and that's white. not that's not absolute. I've gotten right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I've gotten some yeah, we've gotten from older both. that are very liberal and some that are younger that are very conservative, but go on. And okay. like I am a conservative. I'm a uh, technically I'm a paleo conservative how it would be defined, but uh without the racism. But uh the the I, high I'm a Catholic. I sh I'm a political orphan. I have no home. Oh. <laughs> you're so brave. Uh <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm conservative. You're so brave. But uh no, but within that within that milieu, right, you find and I think that's important to think about like for a white person to sit here and say, I'm not doing, I'm, I, I want, I don't care if black kids are going to my kids' schools. I don't care if they're going, I, uh, working at my job. In fact, we go out of our way to hire African Americans at our job. Then look at people talking about microaggressions 
and, and needing safe spaces, and they see it as this, and this is one of the interesting things, why are people so angry? And I think it's because, and I want your opinion on this, I think it's because as suburban youth, there isn't widespread suffering like there was for previous generations, right? The, right. the civil rights movement of the 60s had to fight against a lot. And uh, one of the things I heard in Denzel Washington with his movie um, Fences talked a lot about race, but part of it was I had to deal with racism, and that's why I'm stuck being a garbage collector when I could have been a baseball player. And now my son can go on and be this amazing athlete college baller, and I want him to be a thing because the white man's going to hold him down. And it, The whole movie is about that tension. Right. And Denzel said something I thought was so funny. He goes, every black family that I knew had the Holy Trinity a picture of the Holy Trinity in their in their house. Jesus Christ on top, Martin Luther King to the bottom, right or left, and, and Kennedy. And John F. Kennedy. <laughs> and I had never heard of that. If, if, and, the, they, and they're all like, yeah, yeah. And if you if you remember the movie, uh the movie The Help, um, yeah. which is about the, you know, the the house workers in Mississippi or whatever, in it when they go into I can't remember her name, the actress. I can picture uh, her face because she's the actress in Fences. Yeah, okay, when they go into her house in the movie, there's a picture of JFK yeah. on the wall. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's because, like, for many of us, like, for my parents' generation, that was racism. Like, yeah. preventing people to vote, that's, like, that's horrible. Like, literally, gangs would wait outside voting booths, and we did away with that, and you're telling me nothing's changed. And for younger people, I, I was talking about this with a first responder who was like, why are we so angry today? I don't get it. And this guy was, he was very, he would call himself pretty liberal, uh, hardcore, I shouldn't say hardcore Democrat, voted Democrat, but he's looking at all this stuff as a first responder, so that's a different lens and more nuance there. He said, why, why are we so angry? I said, I think it's might because of us suburban young people. Many of us did not go off to war. You know, our friends did maybe, but we didn't go off to war. It's like we're looking for something to commit our lives to because everything else is just – and this is Alexi de Tocqueville's thing. When money dominates and you arrive, and you met all your basic needs, you begin itching for meaning because you don't have meaning. When you're suffering right. and you're oppressed, you're longing – you know what your meaning is. When you're oppressed, it's the fight for freedom. It's the, it's the, 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 the riots, right, or it's the, um, the marches on D.C. It's all of that stuff. But when you – when you don't have suffering, when you're not oppressed or not, you know, whatever, you, you can manufacture this stuff. And he goes, manufactured rage on social media has oh contributed to so much of this. It's ridiculous. Yeah, the, I mean, yeah. And, and again, it's all generations. It's just different platforms. Yeah. You know, that, that's the, been the thing that's in, been really exhausting through all of this. In a small town in Texas, I can't remember the name of the town. i got to find it. A group of white supremacists got in a fight with a group of uh, a, a Muslim group, okay? I don't know if you heard about this. No, I didn't. And they traced, the FBI traced the origin of, the, of this fight. It was a public demonstration. It got way out of hand. They traced it to two separate Facebook groups. There was a Muslim group and a white supremacist group. They were both groups that were started by a Russian hacker group. And they were just there to see if they could, and it was all fake, and they were publishing fake news stories and posting it in these groups and the groups that they themselves started yeah. that they populated. Well, and, and that there's a there is a reality to that 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 the enemies of our country know 
that this is the thing that divides us the most. Yeah. I mean, it, it you know, I, I saw a headline that was, uh, it was actually a meme that was shared online last week, and it was actually, it was pretty funny. It was sad given the situation, but it was, the idea behind this meme was, um, it was like, uh, the headline showed that, like, Iran, Russia, China, and Turkey were all celebrating the race war, you know, that, or the race wars, what they called it, that had started in America within the last few weeks. And then the meme was saying, oh, that's cute. They think that uh, just because we're having a family fight that we won't come over there and take care of business. Yeah, it's <laughs> the one thing that will unite us. Uh, so, which is kind of true. But yeah, so how do, we, how do we wrap this up? I think there is, there's a very dismissive concept. I, I, oh, yeah. I, well, I, I want to wrap. This is what I want to say about okay. it. Okay. Uh, and then I'll let you Say go. it to the camera. So... <laughs> Our our job is to be Catholic, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's what Gomer and I are here. That's what that's what we work to do is to build up this parish, to build up the body of Christ. That's what Father Tom and all the priests have committed their lives to. Yeah. They are not the pastor of the Republican Party. Yeah. They are not the pastor of the Democrat Party. Yeah. They are pastors to the people of God, which guess what? Those people are in both parties. Yeah. And so when you get angry or you get frustrated because you didn't hear the homily or the way that you felt that it was, you know, it doesn't really matter because it's not just always about you. Sometimes it's about collectively a conversation that needs to be had. And so my encouragement to our parishioners after kind of viewing this and, and hearing all these things the last few weeks is, uh, you know, th this weekend we're going to be reopening the Adoration Chapel is to go and sit in silence and pray and, and really reflect on, are you letting your politics dictate your morality? Or is your morality being dictated by your relationship with Jesus Christ? Mm -hmm. um, because that is a dangerous precedent that we're seeing in the American church, uh, is this idea that my party defines my Christianity or whatever. And that, that shouldn't be the way that it is. And it's absolutely not the Catholic worldview um, and how we're called to live as Roman Catholics. And, and speaking from personal experience, I remember one of my deepest moments of conversion was in the back room of my parents' house. It's like a little study area. And I remember I was reading the catechism, and I was 18 years old, before I went to Franciscan. And I had a huge conversion moment where I had to accept being Catholic means more to me than being conservative. And I would say, without a shadow of a doubt, I used to be super politically active, not at all now, but I would say I was more conservative than I was Catholic, meaning every statement by every bishop or the pope or whatever was read through that lens of modern American conservatism, left and right, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I have donated tons of money to, not tons of money, let me, let me back that up. When I was younger, I donated my paychecks to political initiatives, pro-life work, um, explicitly, you know, um, donating to Republican Party, you know, people who are anti-abortion. And I understand that the vote for many people for Trump was a vote for the, the triumph of the pro-life right, right? And it did, right? But one of the things that I realize in this is that no party completely encompasses the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the it reason can't. is, is it can't. Left and right were invented at the French Revolution, at the national assemblies that were carried on there. The French Revolutions, where you sat, were you for a constitutional monarchy? 
police or an absolute monarchy, sit here on the right. Are you for a constitutional monarchy? Sit here on the left. Then the leftists killed all the rightists. Then the new right became, are you here for a constitutional monarchy or do you want a republic? And then the Republicans killed all of them and then they killed the king and then they killed each other, and that was the end of the first French, uh, French Revolution. <laughs> Thank you, Jacobins. But the idea behind it is Entrepreneur. The... <laughs> Entrepreneur. Uh, but the idea of it was the left and the right are a 200-year-old way of classifying categories of thought, and the church is 2,000 years old, right? The gospel, the gospel is 2,000 years and old. And the gospel is outside of time because it yeah. is absolute truth. Yeah. So there are elements of the left. Like, the reason why a lot of us on the right are critical of our bishops is it seems like they hitch their train to the left because of the care for the poor, the care for the suffering, the labor, or whatever. And then all of a sudden, that train went right by caring for the poor and the suffering and the immigrant, and then just kept going into dangerous territory that they're like, wait, now I'm a socialist? And all the marriage issues and all that stuff. And it's like, whoa, I didn't get on board here. And then the people on the right who are opposed to those later stops along the train, it almost seems like, well, if I defend social justice, then I'm one of those people. Right. And it's not. It's the beautiful both and the vibrant paradox of the Catholic faith. And it's also why our parish will never, ever endorse a political party. Yeah. It's, it's an election year. And you are not going to hear it from us. You're not going to see it in the bulletin. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to hear it from the poll. But you may hear things that you interpret to be one way or the other that that may come from an individual's personal yeah. uh, beliefs of what's most important in yeah. terms of what they're working on in the Catholic world. But that does not mean uh, you know that that anyone is uh, from the parish is going to be endorsing one political party, at least not on behalf of the parish. Now, yeah. what people do outside of work, what people do in personal conversation, we can't control that. That's not our right to control that, and we shouldn't control that. Um, our job is to form consciences as best we can to yeah. uh, vote your conscience, and you have a prior obligation to form your conscience. Yep, And you and form I that love, through yeah. prayer, through study, through scripture. The church's moral teaching as it applies to politics, yeah. pro-life. Catholic social thought. Yeah, all that stuff. Everything matters, right? Everything matters in this. Start with Rerum Novarum, Pope <laughs> yeah. Leo the yeah, 13th, and just read all the encyclicals from there. Yeah. And uh, just to remind ourselves, when we are going through this, I am not here to ratify your views. And I can only speak from a place of my views. And the only way I can learn your views is if you share them with me in a good way. And I have had many people right now, tomorrow, uh, when you hear this, it already happened. I have a parishioner who is very antagonistic to our last thing called to set up in a meeting. And I already know what the meeting's about. I know, you know, to you, this is all past tense. To me, it's future tense. But I love this parishioner. I would easily lay down my life for this person. And this person I know loves me. So we're going to have a difficult conversation tomorrow, and I'm okay with that because he's going to come at me with what he believes are facts and figures, and he's going to present them to me and say, how dare you say this or why did you say that? And I can explain. I can explain myself in a way that I know he'll listen because he loves me and I love him. And yeah. when we have that level of understanding, that's when truth can, be, can win. You know, and I will change my mind, but not before I get to scream into a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also I was going to say, uh, There's so many a lot of you guys know us. We don't always know all of y'all. Yeah. 
So uh, a little grace in uh, if you do, yeah. you know, want to talk to us about Where's something or if you disagree with us. Yeah. Right. A little grace in how you approach us is helpful, as is it is for our pastors. Calling and Father and Tom not a true shepherd of Jesus Christ. Not a good way to start a Not message. a good look. Not a good look. Not, not a good look for someone who's given, what is it, 37 years of his life to the priesthood. <laughs> yeah. Godly. So oh, anyways. Oh, all right. Christ. So we don't normally have podcasts like this where we gripe. But it, it kind of felt good. Hey, you know what we should talk about? What? Let's talk about the Holy Trinity. Okay. <laughs> right now? No. Not right now. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to uh, some sort of a, a different topic next week. Um, exciting things, though, happening this weekend. Adoration's reopening with some new procedures. So look for... How uh, many people can be in the Adoration Chapel? Ten. Oh. Ten, including the adores. Um, it, it will, that would be the capacity. And then... Uh, yeah, it'll just pretty yeah. much follow the same protocols. The Ray, church. thank you so much for your tireless work. This oh my is gosh, awesome. Ray Switzer, what an hey, amazing wait, woman! What day are we opening the Adoration Chapel? The Feast of Corpus Christi. <laughs> How beautiful is that? We totally intended it that way. Yep. <clears throat> all right, I think we've uh, we've said enough. We love all of you guys. We're praying for you. We hope that you're praying for us. And also this weekend. Uh, if you're listening to it in real time, is the Feast of St. Anthony of Padua, Hey-o. our patron on Saturday. So we'll be praying for you guys. Say some prayer for, prayers for us. That's all, That's folks. it. That's it. God bless you all. In nomine Patris, Ephili, Espiritus Amen. every time. My wife sneezes. I still do. <laughs> <laughs>